Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's my privilege to be able to speak to all of you tonight. And um, I hope you've all come ready to really want to hear God's word and what he has to say to each one of us. Um, I get the feeling he's speaking more often than we're listening. Kind of like in Proverbs, wisdom's crying aloud, and it's just up to us, you know, are we listening? Do we have ears to hear? Um, so tonight, I wanted to preach from the passage in Second Chronicles 7.14. I know that that passage is very familiar to all of us, and it's been quoted a lot. Um, but still, just in light of everything that's going on in the country right now, um, the verse just comes back to me, and I feel like there's a lot there, and I hope that even though it's familiar to all of us, we don't just glaze over it and uh, just keep on going on with life, because this, the whole message tonight is predicated on the, on the fact that our country is under judgment from God, and I firmly believe that. Um, I still believe that God is a God who is involved in the affairs of man, that he judges nations, and, um, and that he blesses nations, okay? And, and I believe that all that's in God's word. And as we look around us at what's going on right now, uh, it's very easy to get riled up and to try to get involved in all the politics or try to point fingers at this and that, but I believe that God sets up kings and, and um, pulls kings down. And the leaders that are over us, of course, and I've heard so many people say, well, God's still on the throne. He's still in control. And of course, of course, he's still on the throne. Of course, he's still in, in control. But that should be something frightening to us in a sense because he has either ordained what's going on right now or he's allowing it. And it should really get our attention. I don't think we can just say, Oh, God's in control, and then just keep on going, because uh, I feel like that's the Hezekiah response, if you know what I'm talking about. King Hezekiah, uh, when he sinned, he did foolishly, and the prophet rebuked him and said that because of what you did, um, judgment is going to come in the days of your children. And King Hezekiah said, isn't the word of the Lord good, because it's not going to come in my days. I'm not going to see the judgment. And I don't want us to have that kind of a response. Um, in conversation with different people, too, I've really felt like there's kind of like this fatalism where, well, brother, America's not in the Bible, you know, uh, and, you know, the end of the world's got to come sometime and everything, but if we realize why, why the end comes, it's because the light's no longer shining. It's because the salt is losing its saltiness. That's why the end comes. It doesn't come because without a great falling away first, the scripture tells us. And I think that would be a tragedy if it happened in our days. I personally really want revival again. I think it was last Wednesday night. A group of guys and Pastor Will, we were over there talking, and one of the guys said, what do we even do? Like, what can we even do? Like, what's the solution? And the solution is obvious. It's God. You know, Pastor Will said revival. And I've heard that before. I've heard somebody say that the only hope for the church in America is 
Persecution or revival, and I'd rather it be revival. I don't know about you, okay? Um, I feel like the things that have happened recently have happened all so quickly, and there's been so many drastic changes that I can see persecution happening real easily. You know, in the past, it, I wouldn't have been able to imagine how that would come about in some ways, you know. Persecution seems so far off, but now I think it's a reality. Revival's the solution. I agree fully with Pastor Will. Uh, I heard something today I thought I'd share with you. I thought it was funny. Um, what was it? Somebody said something along the lines of, uh, you think the problems around us are real bad. Just wait till you see the government solution. You know what I mean? So that's, that's what I feel like that describes accurately what's going on right now. The solution's not in the government. You know, the solution is in God. And I feel like he's laid out the solution for us very clearly in his word. And many times... Well, not many times, always, when we do not benefit from the promises made to us by God, it's because of a failure on our part, not on God's, okay? God is faithful. He's always going to keep his word. He's always going to come through in his promises and his blessings. But there are conditions. My father, growing up, my father used to always say, what's the biggest word in the Bible? And he'd say it in Spanish, okay? You know, he'd ask the Spanish-speaking people, uh, what's the biggest word? La palabra más grande. So, which can be understood as the greatest word in a sense, you know. Um, it's the same word in Spanish for great and big. And so what's the biggest word or the heaviest word, the word that carries most weight in the Bible? And my dad would say, and obviously I'm not going to argue over this, you know, but it, just to kind of give some perspective on it, he would say it's a word if. You know, it's not the word with the most syllables, it's not the word with the most letters, but the word if carries so much weight, okay? It carries a lot of significance. Just to go over a few passages in Scripture to illustrate the point, um, John 6, 51 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. I think to put it in the negative tense is also equally true. If any man eat not of this bread, he shall not live forever. Can we all agree on that? Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And there's so many instances all throughout Scripture, scripture that illustrate this point. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. Okay? If any man enter not in by Jesus Christ, he shall not be saved. That is as equally true. And I'm not going to go on to all of the different examples I had here because there's a bunch, but the word if, if we're really reading it, if we're really paying attention when we go through the scripture, we realize the significance of it. And in the passage of today, uh, verse 14 of chapter 7, Second Chronicles, starts out with the word if. Uh, obviously, this passage comes, you know, prior to this. Solomon has just finished the temple, um, and he makes a prayer to God, asking God to hear when his people pray from that location or toward that location if ever they're in judgment. There's a lot of different scenarios that Solomon goes through, but he's asking God to listen and to hear. 
and God responds to Solomon after that. And I'm going to start in verse 12, just to go back a little bit. And uh, it says, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, and have chosen this place to myself for an house for sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. Okay? Who's the one sending these things? God is. Okay? Don't we think that the one that ordains them can also fix them? Okay, but they're there for a reason. We've got to figure that out. It says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their, and heal their land. Uh, I want to submit to you that the problem is not in the government. Okay? The problem's not in the lost world out there. They're sinners doing what sinners do. Okay? I think that the, the condition of our country, I believe that the fault lies squarely at the feet of the church. That's what I firmly believe. Um, he says here, if my people, and in case there's any confusion, he says, which are called by my name. What do we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians. We bear the name of Christ. Okay, My people, which are called by my name. I said it earlier, we're the, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. If we, we can start to see some examples of this right now in the nation with a lot of the defunding of the police. What happens when we start to defund the police? There's a rise in crime, right? And we're not, obviously, obviously we want there to be law and order. We want all citizens to abide by the law. But when that starts to happen, say the police, say, oh, I'll say this, Satan can't defund us, okay? It's not like the government where the police can be defunded, okay? You can't, Satan can't defund the salt of the earth. He can't defund the light of the world, okay? When the light starts, stops shining, that's on us, okay? So, but what happens, a rise in crime happens. We can't blame criminals for doing what criminals do, okay? If law enforcement begins to be corrupted or begins to grow lax, that's where we would put, that's where we'd say most of the, the fault lies. And that's why I believe it, it does lie at our feet. And I'm not going to belabor the point anymore and try to emphasize that. But I think that that's very important to understand that this is speaking to us. I think sometimes as a church of Jesus Christ, we think that we're saved. We think that it's all hunky-dory from here on out. We think that um, we can't really do anything wrong because of all of the positionals that we've been taught. We've taught that you're positionally righteous. We've taught that you're positionally holy and all these other things, but we haven't been taught enough on sanctification and on that he who has begun a good work in you, he's going to finish it. I just feel like 
it's pretty pathetic. I feel like we're, we're lacking in so much. You're telling me that Jesus Christ, by the power of God, his physical body rose up from the grave, and he can't make a physical change in your life. I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, it says if we humble ourselves, God's people, which are called by God's name, if we humble ourselves. Pride says the responsibility for the problems lies elsewhere, like Saul. You remember Saul in the Bible? He was confronted with a sin by Samuel. What did he say? He had all kinds of excuses. He was proud. And guess what? God rejected Saul. Okay, The Bible tells us clearly God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Saul was rejected. If we look at his counterpart, David, we see there some humility. When Nathan stands up and says to David, Thou art the man. Okay? David says, Who did this? You know, they're going to pay for it. And he said, You did it. It's you. What did David do? He repented. He humbled himself. And he obtained grace. Uh, obviously, we all want to live in God's grace. We all want to live in God's blessing. But there's conditions on which it comes. You know, there's, there's things that God might give you unconditionally, but there's other things that come conditionally. Okay? So what does humbling oneself look at? I just want to go over quickly. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read off from James 4, 1 through 10. And remember, too, James, once again, is speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He's not writing an epistle to the unbelieving world. They wouldn't read it. Okay? He's writing to brothers when he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence? Even of your lusts that war in your members, ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, and we sure need it, don't we? We need God's grace right now. That's what I believe. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. So here's what humility looks like. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher tells us there's a time for everything. But I don't really see, in the church today, I don't really see place for mourning and for weeping. I think part of it is because we, we think that we're God's special children and we can do no wrong. But there's a place for mourning, and I think it's now. When we humble ourselves and come to grips with the true state of affairs, when we see what's going on around us as God sees it, and the state of our, our heart as God sees it, the only thing left to do is throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and pray. Okay? That's what it says right here. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. When we humble ourselves, when we bring our thoughts and our views into line with God's word and what he says about things, this, it's, 
it's a process of humiliation in a good sense. I don't mean humiliation and something shameful. I mean being humbled by God. When we realize what He says and we take it as it is without making excuses for it, we humble ourselves. We need to throw ourselves then upon the mercy of God in prayer. We have to face our own inadequacy and the inadequacy of our programs and activities and realize that without me, you can do nothing. We like to quote that verse a lot too, but I feel as though in between the lines, there's a parenthesis there when we read it and we read, without me, you can do some things. We think that there's some things that we can do on our own. Do you think that we know better in some areas and then we relinquish other areas to God? Okay. I believe that we have to come to grips with this again. We need to humble ourselves and say, without God, we can do nothing. And then go to the Word and say, what does God want me to do? What is He doing? And I'm going to do that because that's where His blessing's at. It's not at the programs that I come up with and I say, God, can you bless it? And I'm not saying that God can't bless those things. I'm just saying, if we want to see a revival in this nation, we've got to wake up to the signs that this, what's going on, is for us to fix. And I don't, I don't mean us to fix. You know what I mean. Uh, it's God's to fix. He's the only solution that there is, but He's given us clear guidelines. He's laid it out for us in His Word. Only when we arrive at this point will we stop the games and truly pray. You know, have you all ever thought about the fact that the men that spent night and day with Jesus for three years, they never asked him, Lord, teach us how to cast out devils. and Lord, teach us how to do all these miracles and heal the sick or teach us how to be wonderful speakers. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I think that if you look at Jesus' life and his life of prayer, I think that there must have been something there when they saw Jesus pray, when they saw him speak to his father. And they said, Lord, that's what we want. I want God to teach me how to pray. I think, I think we're really lacking in men of prayer. Prayer is something we've just thrown to the wayside. But where are the Jacobs to take hold of God and say, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me? Because that's what it's going to take. And seek my face. You know, we got a lot of wonderful promises in Scripture about seeking God's face. It says, And ye shall seek me, and ye shall find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Once again, there's another condition there, but we have that promise. You shall seek me and find me. He's not elusive, He's waiting, He's there, He's calling. We're saying the song, Sweet Hour of Prayer, is their calling. What did he say to Peter? Would you not watch with me one hour? 
computer. Luke, what I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. But what is it that we're seeking? As James point out, points out, God won't grant requests that are intended to be lavished on self. He's not going to do it. Are we like Mary, that all we desire is to sit at Jesus' feet? It says here to seek God's face. What do we want? Are we seeking a solution for our country? You know, I want that. I want revival, but I don't. It should be deeper than that. Our desire should be to seek God's face, to want to behold him like Moses, who even though he was promised success by the hand of an angel going with him, would not budge until he received the promise from God that he himself would go with his people. In Moses' personal request, you remember it, Lord, show me thy glory. That's what Moses wanted to see. And I think that I think that Moses had realized and understood something about God and understood something about God's glory to even make him ask that. I don't, I don't know that we fully comprehend and understand what it means to see God, to know him. It would change us. It would change us completely forever. Is God's presence enough for us, or is it God plus heaven, or plus church growth, or plus success, or et cetera? You fill in the blank. Is God a means to get to something, even if that something is good, or do you just want God himself? Do you just want to sit at his feet? Do you just want to see his glory? I'll just say with the psalmist, when thou saidst, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. And here to turn from our wicked ways, I'll try not to belabor the point tonight, but I don't think that we really think we're wicked. And that's a problem because God says to his people if they turn from their wicked ways. You know, there's a church that Jesus said something to one time. He was telling them that they claimed to be clothed, and they claimed to be rich, and they claimed to see. But he said, you're naked, you're blind. And Jesus was outside knocking. That verse, I'm sorry, that verse is not about ask Jesus to come into your heart. He's knocking. And that verse was to a church that had shut Jesus outside, and they're doing their own thing. And he said, Behold, I stand at the door, and I knock. We sing the words to that well-known hymn, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing it, but do we mean it? When is the last time we actually saw ourselves at wretch? as wretches. Was it upon conversion? Maybe. Maybe. I'm afraid sometimes too we're too afraid of people's self-esteem that we don't want them to think 
that God thinks that they're wretched. You know? We have worked so hard at making sin commonplace and inconsequential. Oh, I'm just a sinner, brother. Just a sinner saved by grace. It's just who I am. Yes, Jesus died for sinners. But sin was the whole reason that Jesus went to the cross. And if you think Jesus going to the cross was just a show, then you're wrong. And I don't think we understand sin. Adam and Eve ate a fruit. And they fell from the relationship with God over eating a fruit. It's not about the fruit. It's about disobedience to a holy God. And I don't think we have the right perspective. A lot of people quote, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags from Isaiah. There's only three times in the Bible, in the authorized version, that we find righteousnesses. It's in Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. And every time, each time the word is referring to individual actions or deeds unassociated with an individual's actual character in standing before, before God. So it's pointing out the deeds, the works that are being done, the righteousnesses. I, I think that's very important that we understand. Because Isaiah was prophesying to a people who, despite the fact that they draw near to God with their mouth and honor Him with their lips, those are all the righteousnesses, their heart is far from Him. That's what the passage is talking about. That's the context. You can read all of Isaiah 64. I firmly believe that. Uh, not in any way am I trying to say that man does not have a sin nature. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. Okay, The Bible says clearly, there's none righteous, no, not one. Okay? And I firmly believe that. I'm not at all trying to dispute that. I'm just saying in this passage, when we use that that way, it's wrong. Okay? It's calling out a hypocritical people. That's what that's talking about. Because otherwise, in Psalm 11:7, when it says, The righteous Lord loveth righteousness, it means he loves filthy rags. Is that what it's saying there? No, there's a genuine righteousness that we have. Not only positional but there's a growing in sanctification in the believer's life. Okay? And that's what the Lord loves. There's a, a proverb, Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Okay, that's the distinction we need to make. Isaiah was speaking to a people who, with their lips, honored God, but their heart was far from him. Okay? And to those people, he said, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And that's something that we've got to figure out. There's no amount of religious performance or religious activities or things that we do or praying as we come together to pray tonight. None of that is going to please God. It's the heart that it comes from. Cain and Abel both brought an offering to God. And I understand we can look at that story and come up with a lot of analogies and understand a lot of things from it. We can understand that uh, Abel sacrificed a lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But the offering of first fruits is also a mandate by God in the Bible. Okay, Hebrews tells us that whatever is not a, uh, it, it tells us that uh, Abel's sacrifice was accepted because of his faith. Okay, so when we look at this here, I don't think that Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted because 
Cain just so happened to be a farmer and didn't have any sheep, okay? It's because the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. It's all according to who it's coming from. And no way, I'll, I'll say there, it's the whole obedience to obey is better than sacrifice. That's, that's what that means, okay? God doesn't have pleasure in the sacrifices that you bring to him when we're just walking in disobedience. And once again, the scripture comes to mind, if you love me, keep my commandments. Here's that word, if, again. If you love me, keep my commandments. Is it true to say then, if you don't love me, don't keep my commandments? Can we suggest, I think we fully can, on, on what scripture says, if you don't love me, don't keep my commandments. If somebody does not want to keep God's commandments, why do we think that we love God? And that's just scripture. That's what the Bible says. I'm not saying that your obedience to him is always perfect. I'm not saying that as Christians we don't stumble and fall. That's not at all what I'm saying. But when we can persist in disobedience and continue to ignore the clear mandates that our King of Kings has given us in scripture, I think it's safe to say we don't love him. God has called us to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people. We could go on through passage after passage in the Bible where we are called to be holy, not just positionally, but to present our bodies. It's interesting that Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, felt the need to put that there, 1 Corinthians 12, to present our bodies a living sacrifice to walk in newness of life, to deny ungodliness, as it says in Titus, that's the grace of God that, that brings salvation. It's the grace that tells you and teaches you to deny ungodliness. Uh, a lot of times people say God doesn't give us commands that we can't keep. And I've heard it said about certain things about understanding his word and keeping his word he's not going to tell us that we need to keep his word unless we can understand his word and so on but I haven't had anybody or heard anybody I'm not saying no one has I just personally haven't heard anybody apply that to the command be ye holy we spend so much time telling people that you cannot be holy that you are a sinner and that's an insult to a holy God he saved you for better things than that. And I firmly believe that. We're so ignorant of God and lacking in an eternal perspective. Do we really think that when we cross over into eternity, we're going to come before the throne of God and we're going to say, oh man, I was a little too holy back on earth. Is that going to be our reaction? You know, I think that if we had it our way, the seraphim around the throne would be crying out, love, love, love. But that's not what they're saying. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And I, I firmly believe if we haven't understood the holiness of God, we haven't understood the first thing about him. We haven't understood the first thing about his spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. There's an, a widespread ignorance of God, and Hosea comes to mind. My people perish 
but what is that? The lack of knowledge. If you read Hosea, he's talking about the knowledge of God. If you read the preceding chapters and the chapters after that passage, not talking about people are perishing because they're uneducated. And there's enough of those, I guess. But I think God there is talking about himself. There's an ignorance of God. What is eternal life? In John 17, 3, Jesus says to know him. So that makes perfect sense. If eternal life is to know God, then my people perish for lack of what? Knowledge. Every time someone encountered God in the Bible, the reaction was basically the same. Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, Jesus said we're going to give an account for every idle word that we speak, and I don't I know myself, I haven't fully realized this, I admit that, but it'll put it into perspective if we could just get a glimpse of God and His glory, if we could just get a glimpse of the throne room, everything would be put into perspective. John, the disciple that Jesus loved that laid his head on his breast, when he saw the risen Lord, his Savior, he fell at his feet as dead. Many of the things we condone in our daily lives, we'd be terribly ashamed of if we were to stand before him right now. We've lost sight of the majesty and holiness of Jesus Christ. We like to think of him best as our Savior and friend, but we need a fresh revelation of him as King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to tell you right now, right now he's not wearing some clean gown with his hair parted down the middle with soft blue eyes. The Bible tells us that right now Jesus is in heaven and there's a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and he's got eyes of fire. pierce right through our very being, see right to our heart, see all that's in there. Face shining brighter than the sun in its strength. You think you're going to walk up to him and give him a hug? We need a new revelation of God. not a new one. It's the same old one, but we need a fresh revelation of God. Most of the time as we read through the Old Testament, God's people didn't stop worshiping God altogether. They just worshiped other gods in addition to the Lord. But God wants all of us and all of our worship, not some, not even most. He wants all. He will share his glory with no one. Is every part of our being surrendered to him? Are there aspects of my life that I reserve for myself out of his reach?
we need to stop downplaying sin. What we call weakness, God calls wickedness. My Bible says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. When we sin, it's not because of our weakness, because we couldn't help it. Maybe we didn't avail ourselves of the grace that God provided, but it's because of our wickedness. It's not because of our weakness. If we don't align ourselves with the way that God views things, we're not going to have revival. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, Proverbs 28.13 says, But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And we're definitely in need of God's mercy. But it's going to take humility for us to be able to admit that. And we have wonderful promises from him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some of it, not most of it, but all of it. Then we have the promises. If we do all this, then will I hear from heaven, God says, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their, heal their land. Just as sure as anything else that God has written for us in his word, his promise is true. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. See, godly sorrow, godly sorrow always works repentance. And it's always with a message of redemption and a message of hope. God chastens his children. We always have to remember that. And when we, when we receive the rebuke of the Lord, when we humble ourselves, when we turn to him, he picks us up again. And he comes to us and he heals our land. He says, I will hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. It's just like if you were to go to the doctor and the doctor were to present you with a problem, the doctor's not trying to, I don't know, he's not trying to make you feel bad in any way. It's just, he's trying to help you. He's got to tell you first that you've got cancer or whatever it is that somebody might have. He's got to address the problem. He's got to show them the issue. What were to happen if the person said, no, no, I think you're wrong. I don't have cancer. And they walked out of there. God rebukes those that he loves. It's the same with sin. God addresses it because he wants to wash it away and forgive it. 
That's what God wants to do. He's rich in mercy. But he's never going to compromise his own character, and he's never going to go against what he's already laid out for us in his word. He's not going to do it. And I'll hear from heaven. We can take God at his word. What when we do our part, he will keep his promise to hear our cries and our prayers. And if we confess our sins, he will forgive them and heal our land. Our land is in real need of healing. So much is wrong socially, politically, and otherwise. It's really a mess. And it's hard to know where to begin. But God has given us the solution. It's right at our fingertips. But we must humble ourselves in obedience to God first. The only thing that we really have to sacrifice is ourselves or our self or selfishness. But we have everything to gain. We have the riches of heaven waiting there for us.